How are you guys? My Ohana. <laughs> oh, jeez. You guys have a good weekend? Yeah. I am so I am so bummed. I missed the amazing race last night. I heard New Zealand won. <laughs> that is unfortunate. No, it's good. It's good. I just, with two China teams, I thought maybe China would have stepped up a little bit. What happened, guys? What happened? Um, it's okay. It's okay. They didn't have their leader. Yeah. Yeah. I tried to get back as soon as I could. I couldn't get back until about 7 o'clock last night. But, no, it's good to be back. Um, it's good to see you guys again. Uh, how are you liking Dave? Yeah? All right. <laughs> oh, man. Well, sweet. I'm excited to be here today and excited. I got to uh, hang out with Dave last night a little bit, and he was just telling me about some of the things he did. Um, I guess he made you guys clean your rooms. That's pretty awesome. Okay, not as many excited woos there. <laughs> um, no, that's cool. I'm so excited. We were just talking about the rest of the week, and I'm really anticipating God to, to speak some amazing things to us. Are you guys ready for that? Are you, like, expecting God just to speak to you today? I hope so. Can we get one person to come up here and pray for Dave this morning? How about someone who's never prayed for a speaker? Huh? Matt? Matt in the hat? <laughs> All right, Matt in the hat. You can thank Miriam later. <laughs> Uh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, um, bless Dave's uh, word for us and let us be able to take everything in, be able to learn so much from him. He has so much to offer, Lord. He's shown us so much from the first day and this is only his second day. Let us just be able to take in all the information, Lord. Guide him in his words that he teaches us, Lord. Amen. More often. Morning. Anybody else feeling the amazing race kind of? Still residual effects of that, yeah. Somebody brought up something during breakfast this morning. I'm like, we shall not speak of food during breakfast. That's bad. All right, let's just remember where we're going this week. By the end of the week, you will have personally engaged God's work in your life to become more of the leader God has called you to be. And not simply getting information, not simply filling our heads, not simply getting some great notes that one day when you're asked to lead something you can look back on, but actually becoming the sort of person, even right now, even this week, um, who God needs you to be. So I want to keep getting to know each other, and I want you to um, keep getting to know me, and I want to keep getting to know you. So we're going to do a little bit more of that today. This is Africa. I am going to Mozambique. If you were to divide Africa into thirds, sort of a, a top third, a middle third, and a bottom third, how many people would say that Mozambique is in the top third? How many people would say Mozambique is in the middle third? How many people would say Mozambique is in the bottom third? You are correct, bottom third. There it is. That is where I'm going to be living. That is my, uh, my two-year-old who was able to locate Mozambique on a map. Just wanted to point that out there. But uh, it's right above... Right above South Africa, also next to Swaziland there, it borders uh, Zimbabwe, Malawi, 
and up north is uh, Tanzania. It's across the channel from Madagascar. It's one of the poorest nations on earth, which kind of loses its um, its statement, right? Like when you when you hear we're going to go minister to the poorest of the poor, like that phrase is kind of worn out, isn't it? Like aren't like really really poor people like do we need to grade them on a scale of poverty there um let me let me tell you a little bit about mozambique because i want you to know why i'm going there what's in my heart okay so um mozambique was a portuguese colony from the 1500s uh it was a colony until 1975 it got its independence 200 years after the united states won its independence um complicated political reasons for that the primary being that um Portugal was neutral during World War II, whereas most countries uh, in Europe were not that had colonies. And so they called upon their colonies as conscriptions and said, hey, come fight in this war with us. But then the colonies, who were now trained as soldiers and had weapons, would go back home and they would say, we're not so hot about like England or France or Germany or whoever ruling us anymore, so we would like independence. So they won independence in the early 1900s, whereas Portuguese colonies didn't win it until much later. Um, the, the Portuguese were, um, were also slave traders and, and really did some, some devastating things on the continent, um, and specifically in Mozambique. After the, after the Revolutionary War, they went immediately into civil war because the Soviet Union funded the revolution. And so it was a Marxist revolution. So they went instantly into communism and the West said, hey, we're not really big fans of communism. So they began funding and providing weapons for people to fight a civil war. And so it ended up being almost 30 years of war uh, in the country of Mozambique, which just devastated their country. About a third of the population was either killed or displaced by the war. You can imagine what that would do uh, to a country. So here's the statistics now. There's 21 million people. Oh, check this out up here, that, um, there's an AK-47 on their flag. It's the only flag in the world that has a gun on it. Uh, there's 21 million people. Check this out. 50% of the population is 17 or under. Okay, you ready for this one? 75% of the population is 25 or under. It is an entirely youth culture because AIDS, war, etc., has completely ravaged the country. Okay, imagine a country where 75% of the people are under, or 25 or under. I mean, it's extremely young, and most of those people are, you know, it, we would call them in the States dependents, right? That you are dependent on somebody else. In Mozambique, you don't have that luxury of being dependent. When you, when you hit 12, when you hit 13, you need to go and find a way in order to exist. So there's a 10% infant mortality rate. If you're not familiar with that term, that means that one out of 10 children do not make it for, through their first year of life. Either they are um, born and, and, and die very shortly or within the first year they die. Yeah, the infant mortality in the US is like 0.03 or something, or maybe 0.003. 12% um, of the population is infected with HIV AIDS. So more than one out of 10 people already have HIV AIDS, okay? But Mozambique is one of three countries on earth where the AIDS rate is still increasing. Let me, you probably have not taken statistics, so let me explain the difference, okay? In every country around the earth except Vatican City, the AIDS population will go up this next year. The number of people who are infected, there will be more people infected this next year than there were this last year, yes? Everybody's got that. 
Okay, however, in every country on earth except three, the total percentage of the population who is going to become infected is either steady or declining. So the percentage of people that are infected every year is steady or declining in all but three countries, Mozambique, one of them. The percentage of people that are infected this year is greater than last year, and the percentage of people who are going to be infected the following year is going to be even greater for a number of different reasons. One is, well, the primary one is lack of education and very bad information. The second one is there's a lot of young people who frankly are horny and have nothing else to do because there's no jobs, and so they're just sleeping with each other because they're bored. The third and the, and the, and the darkest one is that um, the, what, what they would call traditional healers, what we would in the West typically call witch doctors, are teaching people that the way to get rid of AIDS, if you're a man, is to sleep with a virgin. And so over 50% of the women in the country, their, um, their first sexual experience is unwanted. And so AIDS is being transferred because these guys think they can get rid of it by sleeping with a virgin. And I'll let you imagine the horrors of how young they're willing to go in order to guarantee that a girl's a virgin so they can get rid of the disease that's killing them. It's terrible. It's terrible. And obviously, my, my heart breaks for stuff like that. I'm, I'm sure yours does. Okay, the gross domestic product, uh, the GDP of the entire country is $19 billion. Gross domestic product means every dollar earned by anybody in the country. And 19 billion is like tiddlywinks for 21 uh, million people to earn. That means the average income, like every dollar earned for an entire year, is an average of $900 per person, which is like barely more than $2 a day, yes? Um, officially, it's 50 to 80% unemployment, but the reality is that it, when you and I talk about a job, okay, like a paycheck, something you can live off from, even if you need to live in like a tiny little apartment or whatever, like you can make a life off from this, yes? A job. The, actual, if, if the way we talk about jobs, 98% of the population is unemployed. Only 2% actually are either gainfully self-employed or actually get a paycheck from somebody else. The, the UN lists the number as 50 to 80% because technically 50 to, um, 20 to 50% of the population actually, you know, technically has a large enough garden in order to be able to survive from one year to the next. So they call them employed as farmers, even though they're just doing it as a, as a means of survival. They're not doing it because they're getting anywhere in the world. So very bleak. Um, but hey, that's, uh, that's where we're going. Sorry, these are, these are kind of blurry. What I'm going to be doing over there is leadership development stuff with, uh, with, with pastors and church leaders. This guy in the middle, his name is Luis. Um, I'll tell you a story about him in a second, but on the right is Roger and Lynn Smith. They're going to be partners. I'm going with an organization called World Venture. You've probably never heard of it. It's a, it's a smaller mission. But um, Pastor Luis and I were uh, hanging out um, this night, and uh, we were having dinner with a number of different pastors and leaders from Mozambique, and I asked this question, what's the hardest part about being a pastor in Mozambique? And he said, the hardest part for me doesn't have anything in particular to do with being a pastor, but the hardest part for me is going to bed at night in the village when the children in the village are crying because they're going to bed hungry. And then Roger, who was translating for me, looked over at me and he said, he's talking about his own kids. And as I was sitting there, I'm like, this guy's kids go to bed hungry at night sometimes? And they're crying because they're going to bed hungry because their stomachs hurt? 
And I, I thought, you know, I've been, I've been pastoring at a church for a decade now. And I know what it's like to carry other people's burdens. Like, I know what it's like to, to sit with people when there's, a, when there's a death in the family. I know what it's like to, um, to work with people who are terribly lonely or depressed. Or, you know, in great moments like weddings, I, I know what it's like to live with people and, and to do life alongside of them. But I don't understand how you go about carrying other people's burdens as a pastor when your own kids are going to bed hungry. That just rocked me, jarred me to the core. And in that moment, I, I knew God was saying, I mean, I, I was trying not to tear up on the other side of the table. I could, I could hear God saying to me, you know, Dave, you can help do something about this. I, th I think th this is what I want you to do. And so that was um, really a confirmation of a calling that I had felt going up into that point. But these guys have um, churches with no roofs. I love this place. They don't have a roof. And my wife was the one who, uh, on her visit, took this picture. And um, the, the pastor there said, oh, it's so great our roof fell in. And she's like, that was good? And she, he's like, yeah, it was going to fall in. And we were worried it was going to happen on a Sunday sometime. So it finally fell and no one got hurt. So it's really good that our roof fell in. And uh, it's just sort of piled up in the corner. Um, they don't actually own the property. They're just, they're just meeting there on Sundays and, and worshiping in the middle. The, the dump is kind of all around here. Uh, this is Pastor Luis's church. There's a there's an orphanage. I mean, if you if you're in, if you ever get to go to Africa, if you've never if you've never been there before, it's so funny to um, for me as somebody who's been a pastor in the U.S. for a while and you know hung out at conferences and stuff. When you hear the vision of a pastor overseas, it's so amazing to talk to them about what they think vision is, and then talk to a pastor in the U.S. what they think vision is. It, here in the U.S., we have such tiny views of what God can do, and these guys have nothing. And like you talk to Pastor Luis, and you're like, what, what, do, you, you know, what do you want to see your church do in 10 years? We're going to have a school. We're going to have an orphanage. We're going to have an extremely large farm that isn't just large enough to, to feed the people in our church, but we can feed our entire village. We're going to have a hospice for people with HIV AIDS. We're going to have this education. He just goes on and on and on about all the things that are going to happen in 10 years. And you talk to like the average pastor in the U.S., like, what's going to happen 10 years from now? We're going to like really grow our small groups program and, you know. Maybe we could add a second service. You know, like it's just it's so small the way that we see what God can do in the U.S. Whereas when you go overseas, these guys just see this enormous God, and they don't have any resources to get anything done. But but they just see this enormous God. So they um, they sit on even less comfortable chairs than the ones you're sitting on. And uh, and there we go. So I want to get to know you again. We're just going to do this really quick. We'll do it without a microphone. Um, if you can just give me your name again, because I want to continue to learn names. Remind me what outreach team you're on, and then. Here's the actual tough one. If you actually got something yesterday, potentially from when we were hanging out in here, but potentially not, um, what, what was something that sort of stood out for you? And so I'll be kind and do a little bit of review, or you can look at notes if you were a note taker. We uh, talked in the morning about sort of the, the, the what is uniquely Christian about leadership, the, 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 sort, of, the sort of leaders that God calls um, us to be if, if we're his followers. And then um, the, in the second session, we, we talked a little bit about um, the sort of people that God calls, those who he gives backstage passes to, and specifically we played around with the idea of obedience. So if we, if we can just kind of go just relatively quickly, one sentence or less on the last ones. Here we go. I want to... Um, I want to talk today about the, the most important type of leadership. 
and what that looks like, what that feels like and smells like. Um, but before we, we dig in, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray a prayer that you have probably heard before, but um, I'm going to pray it anyway. Here we go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Would your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? God, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. There's a reason um, I, I, I pray the Lord's Prayer every day. Um, there, there's a particular reason, and it's a, a real quick follow-up from something we talked about yesterday about obedience. If you have your Bible, turn to, turn to Luke 11. That sounds about right. I think that's where the disciples asked, teach us to pray. Yeah, there it is. Luke 11. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place when he finished one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, just pray whatever comes on your mind. No, he said to them, when you pray, say. Yes? He did not say, when you pray, just say whatever comes to your heart and mind. I'm not against that. He didn't say this is a type of prayer that if you sort of unlock the mystery of the type of prayer that's going on here, you're going to get some insight. He says, very simply, when you pray, say. Use these words is, is the idea that's being conveyed in the original language there. And then he gives, you know, what we call the Lord's Prayer. It doesn't have the, the little flowery ending that we sometimes add, you know, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. So, but he says, when you pray, say these things. Let me, um, let me just throw an idea out to you. I, um, I, I, I want to encourage you to continue to pray the way that you have been praying, okay? I would like to encourage you to perhaps add in this prayer to your regular regiment of prayer. I think, I think there is something very specific about these words and phrases. There's a reason that God gave them to us. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't think it's an issue of vain repetition to, you know, to pray it every day. I think Jesus was pretty specific. There's something about the ideas contained in these passages that are worth, that are worth praying. So there's my two cents. And, and quite frankly, um, it, maybe it's even an obedience issue. He says, when you pray, say. Maybe we need to follow those directions. Okay, here we go. Uh, what is the most important type of leadership? Uh, what I want to do is I want to take, um, take a look at this passage, 1 Samuel 28 uh, to 30. It's, it's long. It's three chapters. And we're going we're gonna to study it together as a group. I'm going to reward insights that you give with, um, with candy, but, um, whoa, Whew. almost gave it all away there. Um, 
But first I want to talk about first I want to talk about studying the Bible because the way you study the Bible is um, a lot like good leadership and I'll get into that more tomorrow but I want to but I want to talk for just a second who can who can tell me <laughs> who can tell me what I believe the most important principle of Bible study is what is the most important principle of studying your Bible it's one word what's that reading, reading. yes I'll, I'll need more than that. What's that? Application. Good guess. What? Understanding. Listening, interpretation. The most important principle of Bible study. The most important principle. What was, it? What was your guess? Discipline. Close. Diligence. Good. All of these are good. All of these are valuable. They are not the most important. Meditation, close. Prayer, submission, hearing God's voice. We're getting, okay, tell you what, we're not close. We're getting farther away. <laughs> Keep going. Consistency. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a clue. The most important principle of studying your Bible. Thinking, close. Dwelling, studying, studying. <laughs> that's a very good guess. I appreciate that one. You're the closest so far. Okay. The, the, um, the most important principle, the most important principle of studying your Bible is context. Okay? Think about this for a second. Everything about studying your Bible is context who you are, where you are, what passage you're reading. Give me, a, give me other elements of context that make a difference when you open up the scriptures. What makes a difference? What, what context means something when you crack open your Bible? Your spirit. What about the context of the scripture itself? What, what background information, the culture. Who wrote it? Who it was written to? What other elements of context? Reason behind the words. Translation, absolutely. Knowing knowing something about the the, the meaning of, of what's going on there. The time period, absolutely. The the context of what you are reading, who you are, and how you are reading, is the most important principle of Bible study. It is. It affects absolutely everything. And even with the idea that we can open up the scriptures and God can speak to us, I completely believe in that. We, we can know nothing about who wrote it, wh who it was written to. We, you know, we, we can know nothing about all of the background information and God can still speak to us. And yet the context in which we show up makes a difference. You know, if we, if we wake up in the morning and say, okay, God, I have 30 seconds to read a verse, go, you know, speak. That context somewhat affects how you read that passage, yes? God, I've got nothing else to do all day. I'm just going to crack open the word. I'm going to do some reading, and then I'm just going to meditate on, on what I read. That context affects, yes? Who it was written to, who it was written by, the sort of literature that it is. Nobody mentioned that. 
You should read the Psalms differently than you read a narrative passage, differently than you read Paul in the New Testament, differently than you read Genesis, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. All of those are very different sorts of literature. All of those issues affect what is being said in the passage, and I don't think you can fully understand a passage until you more fully sort of crack that context. Or let me say it differently. The more fully you understand the context of a passage, the easier it will be to understand what's being communicated inside of that passage. Again, that's not to say the Spirit can't speak and use any scripture at any time in any way. What it is to say is that God speaks most clearly through the scriptures when we understand the context. All right? Context. The most important principle of Bible study is... The most important principle of Bible study is... Thank you. Okay. First Samuel 28. So First Samuel 30. I'm going um, to do most of the reading because I have a microphone and an excellent speaking voice. Um, and I know where I would like to stop. Here we go. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. David said, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Achish replied, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel was dead and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Samuel had expelled the mediums, or excuse me, Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. Okay, you guys read your Bibles, so I would like you to tell me the context of what's going on here. First, let's start with some easy things. We are in the Old or New Testament, Old Testament. What sort of book, what, what section of books is this book, 1 Samuel, from? What's that? Yeah, Annals of the Kings, the, specifically the history books is the type, the genre that it comes from. Now, it's a narrative, okay? This is not instructive. This is not a letter, right? It's not a psalm. It's not a proverb. It's a narrative. It's a story, okay? Tell me a little bit about the background. Who do we have here? Let's talk about some major characters. We have this guy named David. He is, he will be King David, Right, right now he is anointed king, but there is another king who is sitting on the throne whose name is Saul. Okay, Saul, however, is not the best king on earth. Let's just leave it at that. He's chasing after David. Because he was chasing after David, David fled to live among the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. And he lived and um, sort of worked for this guy named Achish. And uh, in the previous chapter, in chapter 27, David tricks Achish into giving him this city, Ziklag, and says, look, I'm going to come and work for you. So, every, um, so, so David and his men would go out and they would raid a, a neighboring area, and Ziklag thought that they were raiding uh, the Israelites, when in fact uh, David and his men would go and they would raid the nomadic tribes that were harassing Israel. And David would go in and annihilate everybody so that nobody escaped to be able to tell Ziklag what was really going on. It was a relatively ingenious plan, except it involved killing women and children, which I find complicated in my moral and ethical theology of the Old Testament, which I have no time to resolve with you right now. So, 
Achish thinks David's doing such a great job that he's going to make him his bodyguard, all right? But Achish is about to go into battle against Israel. Now, this battle is different than every other battle that has taken place between the Philistines and the Israelites because the place that it's going to take place is in the Valley of Jezreel. Now, what you need to know is Israel had been incredibly intelligent. Saul had been really intelligent up until this point and had fought almost every battle he could in the hill country, in rocky areas, because it really evened the playing field. That was where Israel was from. They were from the high country in, um, in the land of Palestine, and the Philistines were from the plains. Well, the Philistines had chariots, and so chariots were like ancient tanks, and tanks are pretty darn good against infantry in case you did not know that. However... When you're in the hills, when you're, in, you know, when you're doing these, the, these battles in rocky terrain, chariots aren't any good. And so Israel sort of evened the odds by making everybody fight hand-to-hand, just normal infantry against infantry. Well, now it all comes down to controlling the Jezreel Valley because if the Philistines can control the Jezreel Valley, then they're basically going to cut Israel in half. Dividing forces weakens defenses. It's a brilliant strategic move on the part of the Philistines. So Achish is leading his army into battle, and he's going to go up against uh, Saul, and he thinks David is going to be his bodyguard, his go-to guy, this guy that's been raiding Israel and weakening them, while all the time David's actually been weakening the enemies of Israel, making Israel even stronger. But David's in a little bit of a pickle here, because he's actually going to go into battle against the Israelites. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to give away a little bit more. We don't know what David would have done, but we will assume that he would have fought on behalf of Israel because he was fighting on behalf of Israel. So we think that if this battle had actually taken place, he would have turned at the last minute and started slaughtering the Philistines who were around him who were trusting him. Okay? In fact, we know that to be true. That's the sort of person David was. But let's keep reading. So, okay, real quick. Saul is in a bind because he has to lead Israel into battle against an enemy who is now on unequal footing because of their superior technology of having chariots. All right? Here we go. Verse 4. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem. I can read Israel, Hebrew words. While Saul gathered all the Israelites and set up camp at Gilboa, when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. I don't know what Urim is. Don't ask. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium so I may go and inquire of her. What did we find out just a couple of verses earlier? Who had gotten rid of the mediums? Saul. Who is asking for a medium? Isn't that interesting? There is one in indoor, they said. Saul did such a great job getting rid of the mediums, nobody knew where to find one. <laughs> no, they, the people who were standing around him were like, yeah, I'm pretty sure there's one in Endor, which is a great name. No Ewoks on this one. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, who shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. 
When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a spirit coming up out of the ground. What does he look like, he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams, so I have called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. Let's stop there for just a second. This is complicated, and I want to and I want to talk it through ever so briefly. What what's going on here? What do you see? The spirit of Samuel shows up. Is that problematic for anybody else? Yeah. I mean, we have a dead guy who is showing up and talking again. Anybody want to expound? Anybody want to conjecture? Anybody want to talk to me about what they see, what they think might be happening here? Because, and, and let me say this: I, I, I don't think there, I don't think there's universal agreement. So let's not, you know, let's just be honest with what we think, and no one's any more wrong than the rest. To me, it's just like, it doesn't seem right. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's like witchcraft. Like, yeah, yeah. So sometimes she's called the witch of Endor. Yeah, like it's not coming from God. Right. You know, so I felt weird about that. Yeah, it's it's very weird. I mean, is that really? Samuel. That's a question we have to ask. Is it really Samuel? And it, 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 I don't yeah. Verse 15 says, then Samuel said. It does not say, then the Spirit said, or whatever. Yeah. It says, Samuel actually said it. So Yeah, the uh, yeah. scriptures seem to say that it probably is him. That's complicated. Yeah, he's mad. I mean, when he shows up, he's like, why have you brought me up? So it, it sure seems like it's not, it's, it doesn't seem like it's some spirit who is trying to deceive and pretend to be Samuel because that person would probably kind of play it without being upset. If the spirit's upset, it sure seems like it might be the real McCoy here. I find it interesting that Saul, like, when... The spirit of Samuel asked Saul, like, why'd you call me up? And then Saul starts telling, because the Lord is not here. Like, he's not speaking to me. And he's not telling me anything. I'm like, bro, you're calling up a witch. Of course the Lord's not going to, like, show baby. Like, I just, yeah, I find it kind of funny that he's questioning, like, 
if it really would be the spirit of Samuel, then Samuel would recognize you can't call me up kind of thing because you need right. to consult the Lord. Right. So I think it ultimately Samuel would have, if it was the spirit of Samuel, say, I'm going back to sleep, you need to consult the Lord kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. I just find it funny. Yeah. No, there, there's definitely some irony here. Okay, so maybe I'm just really behind. But, uh, okay, so what has Saul done that isn't from, like, he said that God turned away from him because yeah. Saul did something Yeah, we need wrong. to give some background here, right? Yeah. Saul screwed up royally three times, literally royally because he was a king. Um, there, there, were, there, were, there were specific instructions that Samuel gave to Saul, and Samuel was a prophet, and he was the person who anointed Saul. And so, you know, it, it's one thing in the United States when somebody is elected, right? And it's clear, okay, the people have spoken, you are now president, and you get to do whatever you would like as president of the United States within the, within the bounds laid down by the Constitution. It's another thing in another country where there's a monarchy, and you become ruler, king or queen, based solely on who your parents were. And yet there's no question that you are king or queen, right? But in Israel, it was a very different monarchy because um, the, this was the first monarch. This was the first, Saul was the first and so he was anointed by God. He, he was chosen by God. And so Samuel was the one who saw him and found him and called him out and anointed him. And so he's under God. And in a way, he is under Samuel because Samuel was the one who made him king. There's this, um, I can't remember the king off the top of my head. I want to say Charlemagne. When uh, he was going to be crowned by the pope. The Pope was about to put the crown on top of his head, but Charlemagne walked up, grabbed the crown out of his hands, and put it on his own head. In other words, if the Pope put the crown on his head, the Pope could take it off one day because the Pope had the authority. But if Charlemagne put the crown on his own head, then his authority is only himself. Samuel put the crown on Saul's head, and Samuel told him, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to wait to hear from God. Don't do anything until, you, until I show up and you hear from God. And, and, Saul, and Saul's about to go into battle, and the guys are getting restless, and everything's kind of falling apart, and he's looking, and he's asking his scouts, has anybody seen Samuel? No, nobody's seen Samuel, and he's looking, and he's going to be attacked pretty soon, and he says to himself, okay, I'm going to go ahead and make the sacrifice. I know Samuel said wait for him, but I'm going to make it. And so he goes and makes it, and then the moment that he's done making the sacrifice, Samuel comes walking in and says, what is this? I gave you really explicit instructions, and you didn't follow them. I, I told you what the Lord wanted you to do, and you didn't obey. The very thing we were talking about yesterday, yes? You cannot be part of the inner core. You cannot have that key card access in the kingdom of God if you are not willing to obey. Leadership in the kingdom is not like leadership other places. We still have a leader above us. And if we're not willing to obey God, God will take that leadership responsibility away from us, which is what happened with Saul. Saul has no chance of staying leader here. None. 
He's lost it. It has been taken away. Samuel said that. The kingdom has been taken away from you. So that's more context, yes? That's more, that's more an idea of what's going on. And the more we know, the more we understand. Um, so yeah, he's got no chance of hearing from God is the, is the trick in this passage. And yet, he's got this weakness where he, he calls out from God to God here, yes? And then he doesn't hear anything. And so he's like, let's go to plan B. And plan B is to call up a witch. Now, I want to I talk very briefly about the theology of what's going on here. And then, um, and then we'll, we'll keep reading. It is complicated. I do not know for sure that this is the right answer, but I think this is what's going on, and, I, and it feels like most commentators agree with me. The way that the universe worked in the Old Testament is somewhat different than the way that the universe works now. Okay? In the Old Testament, when you're reading through, especially in the Psalms, there's a place called Sheol. It's the place of the dead. It's sometimes translated as the grave in the scriptures. And what could be happening here, what could be happening in the way that the universe worked in the, in the time of the Old Testament was that when people died, they didn't either go straight to heaven or straight to hell, but that they actually went to, quote, the grave, to Sheol, to this, for lack of a better term, holding tank. And the reality of the existence for the person in the holding tank is simply different than the reality of existence now. There's some people who believe that that's still, that's still the case, that when people die and they're apart from God, that they still go to Sheol, that there is still this holding tank, that, they aren't, that hell hasn't even exactly been created the way that it will one day be created. And so they are going and they are waiting for their ultimate fate. Whereas the scriptures are clear in the New Testament that if you are in Christ and you die, you go and are with him immediately, okay? So it seems like things may have changed in, in, in the New Testament. What may be going on here is that there is actually this special case where this person was able to call up the spirit of Samuel that was in this holding tank, that was in Sheol, and they actually are speaking to Samuel. That is complicated on so many ways. I, I, I don't even begin to be able to understand the level of complexity that that would bring about. It may be a one-time thing. It may have been more possible. It may still happen today. I've got all of those same questions that you do on this. It's complicated. We can hash it out at lunch if you want to sit down and try that one sometime. But something weird is going on here, something very dark, yes? There, there, there is a level of the spirit realm that is being tapped into that I find incredibly disturbing, but there's no question that this is as satanic, as evil, as dark as it can get. No question about that for anybody who's reading this, even when it first happened or, or reading it now, okay? Incredibly dark. Okay, I need to paraphrase so we can um, kind of keep going. What happens at the end of this passage is Samuel gets really ticked off and Saul finds out that he's hosed. And then um, Achish goes to David and he says, look, these leaders are saying, I don't, they, they don't like the fact that you're in the back. See, the bodyguard for the king would be behind the king and would kind of step up to the front as needed because the king isn't fighting at the very front of the battle typically. He's fighting in the middle, kind of back middle. And so the bodyguard would be around the back so nobody could come around and flank him. And the leaders of the Philistines are going to the King Achish and they're saying, look, we don't want... David and his men to be back there because then we have Israelites in front of us and we have Israelites behind us. And Achish says, no, 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 this guy's great. He's been raiding people. He's totally on our side. And they're like, no, 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 no. 
he's not going to be back there. And so they convince Achish to get, to get rid of David. So David leaves. And he goes back, um, he goes back home to Ziklag. And that's where we're going to pick up chapter 30. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag, and they attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women of all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Anoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. What, um, what is similar about what we just read now and what we read before? How, how is Saul's situation and David's situation similar? Yeah, I mean, they are greatly distressed. I need to start giving away candy or I'm not going to get rid of any. Okay. There's, some, there's, there's an expression that's used in chapter 28 and an expression that's used in chapter 30, and it's so good I want someone to find it on their own. So the clue is going to be if you start looking in 30, but it's on the same idea. And I hope your translation keeps the words the exact same. But, but look for a particular phrase that describes the situation that David and Saul find themselves in. There's a particular phrase that's used in there for both of them. Yeah. Yes, yes, there it is. Yeah, I said it. That was a nice clue. When, when, um, sorry, I'm eating jelly beans. When Saul shows up to the medium, he says, I am greatly distressed. And then the scriptures use the exact same phrase for David. David was greatly distressed. Okay, you'll find it in, um, Chapter 28, verse 15, Saul says, I'm in great distress. In chapter 30, verse 6, David was greatly distressed. I underlined them and put the corresponding reference in my Bible so I wouldn't miss this anymore. Both are greatly distressed, yes? What is the fantastic difference between the two? Yeah. Yeah. So I said we're going to talk about the most important type of leadership today. This is it. Self-leadership is the most important type of leadership. There's no question about this. You will never be able in your entire lifetime or my entire lifetime to convince me differently. Self-leadership 
is the most important type of leadership. You will never really be able to lead others until you can lead yourself. I mean, think about the, think about the, the situation that these guys find themselves in. Saul is going up against the Philistines. He is probably going to die, and he knows it. And he's calling on God, the God who he has turned his back on three times, and now God is like, I'm done. And so God's turned his back on him. And he is greatly distressed. Instead of still sitting there and waiting on God, he again tries to shortcut the process. He again tries to find the spiritual shortcut, and he says, hey, I know. I'll go through Samuel. That's how I can get the answers that I need because Samuel knows it. He shortcutted the process instead of waiting on God, instead of leading himself to simply stay put and to wait and to wait and to wait. He tries to find the shortcut. And a, a very evil one, yeah. You're absolutely right. He, he does the exact same sin again and again and again. Absolutely. It's a great thought. Thanks. Um, uh-oh, Snickers on the ground. Um, David finds himself greatly distressed, and then, I mean, let, let, me, let me unpack this for just a second. Think through David's situation. He's pulled a fast one on Achish. However, he knows that Israel is going to be defeated if he's not there. They need his forces in order to win. That just got taken away from him. He goes back home, and he finds that his wife and kids are gone, but not just his, those of every single person. I mean, think about this for a second. Can you even imagine walking into your house and finding out that every member of your family has been taken away? What that would do to you? what that would do to you as the leader of all of the other guys whose families have been lost. Now, they're talking of stoning him. They're ready to kill him because he's the leader. It's his fault. He's got a great big bullseye on his forehead. Everything in the world has gone wrong, and yet in this moment of crisis, when he is greatly distressed, he still had the strength of character, the self-leadership, to be able to say, I need to find strength in the Lord. So let me keep reading. Verse 7, Then David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod, which is the, the priestly covering. Abathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Hold on. Look at that question. What if God says no? If God says no, he may never see anybody again. If God says no, his men may kill him. And yet he was bold enough to ask. Instead of simply going, he was still bold enough to ask God, God, I am in a tight spot and I still am not going to just power up and do this in my own strength. I'm still willing 
to listen to you. And if you say no, if you say my wife and kids are gone, if you say you don't get to lead this anymore, if you say it's time for your men to kill you because you did a crappy job, I'm, I'm willing to accept that. He was still willing to inquire of God. Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. And then there's a harrowing story of how that took place. What are the, um, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to break off because we don't have time. But um, what, what are ways that you find strength in God? When, when you are greatly distressed, what is it for you? What, what, is, what is the thing that you can do when you are greatly distressed to find strength in God? I, I just want us to share some ideas so that maybe we can, we can hear the creativity of other people that might encourage us when we're there. Well, I don't always, but I just try to think back to what he's done for me in the past. Man, that's so awesome. That, that was going to be mine. Yeah, I, there, in my mind, there is nothing that strengthens me more than remembering what God has already done. Absolutely. What else? Uh, just sink deep into his love. Just like, just, yeah, just be swept away by his love. Yeah, that's great. What else? I think um, seeking, like, wise counsel, seeking somebody who, um, like, maybe could see a bigger picture than I do, like, in my in my sadness, like, that I could be saying woe is me or or something like that but but seeking somebody wise who can speak God's truth into me that's great that's great what else what do you do um in difficult times like I just press in to him if I just lean on him he's like the best encourager I could ever have mm -hmm. just listening to him so encouraging. Yeah. Is it okay to complain to God? Yeah, I think so. David gave us some good examples. How much for how long? That's a good question. Ask him. <laughs> Usually I just don't feel like I can pray myself. Just can't find the words or don't feel like it, even worshiping, but just surrounding myself in situations with there's fellowship around. Um, so church or um, praise and worship times. And again, like you usually don't feel like yeah. being there, but it's just being there that I know yeah. it's gonna. Let me, this is such a great idea. I wanna make sure everybody got it. When you find yourself in a situation where you don't have the strength, where you don't feel like it, etc., simply practicing the discipline anyway of being around those who are connected to God is valuable. I mean, sometimes when I want to bang my head against the wall, it's not the best idea for me to just sort of keep my other disciplines. Like, I'm just going to read my Bible anyway, God, even though I'm totally pissed off about this. You know, that's not always the healthiest thing for me, probably more because of me than what's in the Bible. However, being around other people who still have hope, who still have faith, who still believe, is an amazing discipline. Thank you for bringing that up. That's great. What else? What do you do to find strength in God? I haven't mentioned this to a lot of people, but in college, me and my roommate, he was my accountability partner. 
I'd tell him the situation. I'd tell him why I was frustrated. And then we'd straight up wrestle, and he'd encourage me while we were wrestling. So he'd just speak words of life over me while I was wrestling. So it was kind of like you're wrestling with the Lord about it. And since he knew the situation, and he would speak words over me at the same time, it was like, yeah, this is painful, but when we get up, I'm going to feel better because I heard all those encouraging words he said. That's awesome. It's kind of weird. Anybody want to wrestle later, I'll take it. <laughs> That's great. I have a friend who had a punching bag for the same reason, and he would just label it with whoever he... And sometimes he's like, it's really hard when the God label goes up on the punching bag, but that's about where I felt, and I needed to, I needed to do it. Yeah. I like to <coughs> read the scripture. For example, Philippians 4.13, that the Lord is the one who strengthens me, or Psalm 37.5, that I can trust in him. Mm -hmm. And just sometimes everything is hard. I'll go to the Bible and say, you know what? This is what you promised. So here I am. And yeah. I don't know. It works. <laughs> Maybe the last one here. Um, I don't know if this is necessarily right, but like for me, I found it's really good for me to just be honest with God too about how I really feel, whether it's like, if I'm angry or sad or just, like, laying everything out there, like, sometimes it, it hasn't been good for me to just, like, state truth when I, I don't feel it in my heart because it just feels like empty words. But, like, even Psalms, they're, like, there's cries out of despair about questioning God and, like, why is this happening? But it's in the Bible, but it doesn't stop there. Like, after they, have, they like, lay out their hearts and the cries of their heart, they then surrender it to God. So yeah. it's, like... Sometimes you can't just wipe away things. Like, you have to be honest, but it's like you don't stop in your depression or in your despair. Like, you, after that, you take it a step further and lay it at the cross. So. Mm. I, don't, um, I don't have it in this copy of uh, the scriptures, but in another Bible that I, that I use for personal um, devotions, not for teaching, I, I've just gone in there, and any time something happens that was... Just a breakthrough where the Spirit showed up and, and something awesome happened. I just write it down, put a date on it, even a time on it. I have um, every baptism that I've ever done where I got to baptize somebody, I, I, I wrote in there because there's something so, there's something so amazing about being a part of somebody's life being transformed and to actually have the honor to lay somebody down in the water and watch them come back out. And, to, and I, I can't even explain, but there's just, I can even picture in my head different people where, where the water's coming off their faces, they're coming back out of the water, and it's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's, it's being represented there in that piece. There's just something about that that it just doesn't matter how dark my life gets. Having those memories, having those moments just accessible and ready um, it is just the most powerful thing for me. So thanks for processing through this. Good job studying um, 15 minutes. Let's do 20. I feel like 20. My bottom's sore. I have little kids. My butt is sore. I can say that. There's no children present. 20 minutes, 45 after. I'm not getting paid to be an endorser, but um, some of the books I'm giving away, one is The Organic God by Margaret Feinberg, which... Um, is fantastic. One of the, the better sort of devotional uh, type books. One is The Sacred Echo by Margaret Feinberg. Um, this one in particular is about 
hearing God's voice uh, as an echo. And she's just she's got this great idea that I wanted to, to share with you real quick before I before I get rolling on this next thing. That oftentimes when God speaks to us, he, he, he says the same thing again and again and again. And maybe the first time we don't quite hear it. But it becomes sort of this refrain that it sounds like an echo. You know, it's not like speaking, but it's like an echo where like you hear something and then you hear it again and you hear it again. And the more you hear it, the little the more clear it becomes. And she just does a, a great job in there of saying, you know, a lot of times the, the sort of things that God wants to tell us isn't just this crystal clear, brand new, I woke up this morning and God's got this really specific sort of way of, of speaking to me today. But it's just this same echo again and again and again. And it's sort of, um, I don't know if she uses this idea, but it's almost like this music that becomes familiar to us. And then we hear it along the way, and it seems like we've always kind of heard this thing. And she gives some really fun and, and cool examples in there. So um, I would commend any book by Margaret Feinberg. She's fantastic, and um, she is a friend, but I don't get a cut if she sells books. So um, what I wanted to do with this, with this back half is to talk about the, the core strengths of a leader. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a warning on the front end here. And my warning goes like this. Um, some of you guys don't see yourself as leaders right now, okay? Some of you guys don't have and, and haven't come out of any particularly significant leadership responsibilities showing up here at YWAM. Um, what I'm going to share with you works like this. The higher the level of leadership you have, the more you will struggle with what I'm about to talk about the less amount of leadership you have, the less you will most likely struggle with what I'm about to talk about. But somehow, in some way, if you do not internalize this lesson and this idea, it will absolutely destroy your leadership. Okay? So I, I, I am fully aware that some of you guys, are, as I'm talking, are going to be saying to yourself, this doesn't apply to me, this doesn't apply to me, this doesn't apply to me. I get that, okay? So I want you, especially when you're feeling that, to think to yourself, but if this one day applies to me more than I think it does now, if I don't get this, it will ruin everything. But let me say it conversely. If you get this idea, there is just no limit at all to what God's going to do with you, all right? If you get this one more so than anything else that I've seen, God's just, God's going to go nuts. So um, how many of you guys have, um, have applied for a job or applied to a college, something along those lines before? Okay. So what I would like you to do for just a moment is to think about what you put on your application, what you put on your resume or on your college application, something along those lines. Just think, like literally think right now, like what, what, what were the... What were the honors that you put on there? What were the achievements that you put on there? What was the GPA? What were, what were the other work experiences? What were the strengths? What were the, what were the things that you include? When people ask you, formally or informally, what your strengths are, what comes to your mind? Just sort of process this, okay? What's on your resume? If you had to list your achievements and strengths, what are you listing on there? Because the passage that I want to look at, Paul is going to, Paul is going to uh, tell us a little bit of his resume. And it looks a little bit different than like every other resume. But um, 
I, I, I want us to I want us to do some some rethinking, some some retuning of um, of what strengths really look like for us as followers of Christ. So here's here's the deal. What we're going to do is we're going to unlearn. And let me let me make sure you get this concept. Unlearning is hard work. Learning is easy, and unlearning is hard. Okay. Learning is simple. Learning is you sit down and somebody says, hey, you didn't know anything about Mozambique and I just plugged a whole bunch of stuff about Mozambique in your head and you've learned it, right? You now know something about Mozambique that you didn't know about before. You've learned something, okay? Unlearning is much more difficult work because you need to go and you need to take everything you thought you knew, you thought you had understood that, that it had been the structure of what you think and dismantle that and then in its place, put together and lay a new foundation for something new. So what I want to do is I want to I help us unlearn the way we talk about strengths, the, unlearn the way we talk about weaknesses, and sort of re-implant in us something that's really countercultural and opposite of, of what, we normally, what we normally talk about. So if you have a Bible, I want to talk from 2 Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians 11, real quick context, written by Paul to the church in Corinth. Can somebody give me a brief description of the church in Corinth? Yeah. It was basically like a city that he didn't want to go into because how like bad it was. Yeah, it's a pretty, anybody have a modern day example for Corinth type city? Las Vegas. San Francisco, good. Las Vegas, Hollywood, yes. Very much the glitz and glamour, very much into image, very much into wealth, very much into, I mean, it's sort of like a microcosm of America in its, uh, in its excesses. So Paul is taking the Corinthians to task in this passage. And so I want to read in 2 Corinthians 11. I'm going to start reading in verse 16. Paul says, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool, since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward and slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit we were, quote, too weak for that. Paul, um, well, frankly, Paul's pretty pissed off. Um, these guys don't like Paul. Paul is really frustrated with them. They continue to buy into the lies that are being told them by these false teachers, these teachers that call themselves super apostles. And they keep saying, Paul is a fool, and these guys are wise. And there's this attack that goes back and forth. And in, 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 in 1 Corinthians, this same thing's going on. And now he has to write a second letter to the same people about the same subject of who is wise and who is a fool. So he says, okay, if we're going to talk wisdom and foolishness, if that's the game that you guys want to play, then let's just go there. And so since these super apostles are bragging about being super apostles, I'm going to go ahead and do some bragging as well. All right? That's just, if you're comfortable with that, I'm comfortable with that. So I'm going to do a little bit of bragging. And so that's what Paul begins to do. Verse 21, middle of the verse. 
He says, what anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. Who says reading the Bible isn't fun? I'm out of my mind to talk like this? Like, that's just great stuff. Okay. So Paul, Paul lists his pedigree here, right? He says, these guys are saying they are super apostles because they are Jewish followers of Christ. And the Jewish followers of Christ are looking down their noses at the Gentile followers of Christ. Anybody in the room Jewish? A little bit. Okay, so most of, most of us in the room, and predominantly all of us in the room, are Gentile followers of Christ. They are looking down their nose at people like us, people who are of non-Jewish descent. But Paul's like, hey, if you want to pull that out, I'll pull that out. So here it is. Now, we don't, we, we don't talk about lineage so much as a society anymore. I mean, there was a time not too long ago when in America it was a really big deal if you were a Vanderbilt or a Rockefeller, you know, where, where you had this family and, and somehow simply having the right family that you were somehow bred for greatness, um, that, you know, your, your parents had a great breeding program or something along those lines and these families, you know, it, it, it was it. That was all that you needed in order to get a job. Now we have, you know, resumes and things along those lines. Well, the same thing's happening back in Back in Paul's day, where, where they're saying that the breeding, where you come from, your family is a strength. And if you come from a Jewish family, that's a strength. And if you come from a Gentile family, well, then that's a weakness. Now, we don't, we don't say the exact same things anymore. We, we typically go the other direction. And, and we say, you know, that person's great because their kids are so great. And there's this whole Christian organization I've heard of that helps you focus on your family and, um, the, um, and, and the thing is that, you know, I, I don't know of anybody in the room that, that has kids, but the reality is for, for many of you, when you grew up, if you grew up in a Christian family, your parents took pride in you and the way you performed brought honor to your parents and what has been instilled with you because of that is that your family is a strength. The way your family performs is a strength. But the, the, what Paul's saying here is that our greatest strength isn't our family. It, it, our greatest strength isn't the family that we came from. And I believe our greatest strength isn't the family that we one day produce. When you, if you one day um, choose to have kids... Your kids are not going to be your greatest strength. It's not going to be the greatest thing about you. It's not going to be your greatest accomplishment. It's, it's not going to be the thing that, that it just everyone should celebrate as the greatest thing. The greatest strength in your life. Families are strengths coming from a great family. I mean, anybody who hasn't come from a great family knows what a strength coming from a great family is. I'm not arguing that it's not a strength. I'm telling you it's not your greatest strength. Following me? All right. Let us keep reading. After the out of his mind part, middle of verse 23. Paul says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. Come on. Anybody? Nobody got that. With rocks? That's funny. That's funny. I say that in churches, the old people look at me, hmm, rocks? 
Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who's led to sin and I do not inwardly burn? Paul is um, Paul's giving his resume here. He's listing his accomplishments. And in the, in, in the church, in Christianity, we talk about accomplishments a lot differently than we do when we're actually applying for a school or applying for a job. I mean, no one would list these things as accomplishments, but we celebrate people in the church who've suffered for their faith. We celebrate them. I mean, there, there's people around the world today in jail simply because they follow Jesus like you and I do. I, um, when, when I was in uh, Thailand and Laos several years ago, we smuggled Bibles into Laos. And some of the men who we met with in a secret house church meeting um, are now gone. We have no idea where they are. Just, just one month after we had met with them, they disappeared. But we honor people, Yes. Like, we honor people who are willing to die for their faith, who, who have died for their faith. We honor people who are persecuted for their faith. Paul is listing serious accomplishments here. I mean, this is a big deal. None of us in the room has suffered this way for our faith. This is an incredible resume, and yet he's listing all these accomplishments, and he's saying our greatest strength is not our accomplishments. Our greatest strength isn't our accomplishments. And that kind of stings for some in the room. Because some of you, what's that? What verse is that? He, um, the, it's, it's, a, um, it's a summary of all of those pieces where he lists all of those things. It'll be crystal clear at the end. Because you're right, it doesn't say that explicitly, it's inferred. So he's saying, I've done all of these things, but he's talking as a fool so that's the way that you know he's undoing it. So he's, he's speaking as a fool, listing all these accomplishments. So he's basically saying, I would be a fool if I were to just be taking pride in all of these accomplishments. It's a, he's speaking sarcastically here, which he loves to do. And therefore, we should take pride in our sarcasm abilities so we can follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, who said, follow me as I follow Christ. All right. <laughs> so he says... Your accomplishments are not your greatest strength. Which kind of sucks for some of us in the room because some of us have accomplished some really amazing things. And yet, our greatest strengths are, are not our accomplishments. Let's keep reading. Verse 30. He says, If I must boast, I will boast about the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Eratos had the king of the had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. This particular passage has confused scholars for a really long time because they say, why in the world does he go into all this detail about, you know, the city being guarded and this king who's out to get him? And it doesn't make any sense. Like, it's so much extra detail when he just listed all these things that are much worse than just, you know, having a city guarded. But I, I think what's going on here is Paul is name-dropping. You see, King Eratos would even have been known to the Corinthians because he was a notorious bad guy in the first century world. 
And so he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had King Eratos after me, and I got out. No, 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 that's right, King Eratos. Like, it, you know, the whole city w- was blocked off. He's doing this boasting, right? He's being sarcastic. He's being a, just a little bit of a, a Christian version of jerk, right? And he's sort of rubbing it in these guys' faces, saying, I, I even had this guy after me. Now, you will one day be told, if you haven't already been told, that it is all about who you know. It's all about the name that you can drop. But what, what, what Paul's saying here is our greatest strength is not who we know. Our greatest strength is not who we know. It can be a strength, but it's not who we know. I hang out with guys, and um, they, you know, let slip, you know. Well, when I was golfing with the governor the other day, or, you know, I had lunch with so-and-so. He's the president of this corporation that we've all heard of, and these guys just love to let it slip, you know, and let their ego kind of swell up because apparently eating meals and hitting golf balls with people who are famous makes you special. And... um, what Paul's saying here is, look, I'll, I'll brag about this. I'm happy to brag. I mean, as long as we're going to brag, let me do a little bit of bragging. But what he's really saying in the midst of his bragging, speaking as a fool, is that our greatest strength really isn't who we know. It can be a strength that can come in helpful sometimes, but it's not our greatest strength. So what is? Let's keep reading. Verse, or chapter 12, verse 1. It says, I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that. But I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast... I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. This is just dripping with sarcasm, you know? Even if I should choose to boast, I wouldn't even be a fool because I'm really that awesome. But, you know, I'm not going to. I'm going to talk about this other guy who we're about to find out is really him. This guy, he, he says that this guy has visions of heaven. Okay. Now, he says the third heaven up there. He was caught up to the third heaven. I want to explain that theology really quick. Uh, in the Greek world, the sky is heaven one. Space in the spirit realm is heaven two. And heaven, heaven, the way that we use the term heaven, is the third heaven. So there's not, um, the, the Mormons are wrong. There's not three levels of heaven. That's just, you know, what's, what, what's going on here. When he talks about he was caught up to the third heaven, he's caught up to Heaven, heaven, the way we talk about it, okay? So he's got these visions. Think about what he's saying here. He's saying that even these sorts of visions where he is caught up into heaven and sees inexpressible things, even those aren't worth boasting about. You know, we were having a discussion up here um, during the break about, um, about miracles, about you know, uh, uh, seeing amazing things, people, people who have these moments where the Spirit shows up and does something ridiculously awesome through them. And, you know, sort of how do we respond and what does that look like? And how do you know if you're supposed to do that? And th- th- there's all sorts of questions that I've always had related to all of those things as well. But what Paul's saying here is, look, if you can prophesy amazingly, if you can see things that no one else can see, if you can perform miracles, if you can raise people from the dead, if you can heal people, if you can teach in a way that convicts people, if you can simply present the gospel and clumsily stumble over yourself and yet people still respond, 
If you serve in a way that makes people have value, if you demonstrate mercy to people who are brokenhearted, if you use your spiritual gift and God amazingly shows up, even in moments like that, it is still not your greatest strength. Even being able to see visions of heaven is not your greatest strength. Being able to prophesy and see things in the future. I'm not saying they're not strengths. I am saying it is not your greatest strength. So what is? Let's keep reading. Finish the passage. Verse 7. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. See, I told you it was him. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Oh, that's good stuff. Yeah? Our greatest strength, our greatest strength is found where Christ is made strong in us. Your greatest strength is found where Christ is made strong in you. Do you, see, do you see how this is an um, inverse relationship to leadership? What will happen if you become a leader and as you lead, the higher the amount of leadership you have, the more you are succeeding as the trajectory of your influence increases. And that's whether you're leading people. That's whether, like you guys were mentioning earlier, whether it's leading worship, whether it's just demonstrating your gifts and using the gifts that God gave you well. The more successful you are in doing what God has called you to do, the more difficult it will be for you to lean on your weaknesses and recognize that that's where you're strongest. You following me on that? The more when you guys go out and serve, when you go around the world, the more success you see happen, the more doors that you see open, the more prayers that you see answered, the more miracles that you see take place, the less you will naturally want to depend on your weaknesses. Everything in our world, everything about the way we are wired says focus on your strengths and minimize your weaknesses. That's how you're strong. It, it, it play down the parts of you that are weak and play up the parts of you that are strong. Everything about how we seem to be wired makes us want to focus on our strengths and, and live into our strengths. And yet our greatest strength is found where Christ is made strong in us. I have... Um, where'd the verse go? There it is, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Underline it, star it, highlight it, memorize it. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The word perfect there in the Greek is the same Greek word that's translated complete. It's the same Greek word that's um, 
translated, where's my notes? Sorry, finished. Christ's work is unfinished in you outside of your weaknesses. Christ's work is incomplete outside of your weaknesses. It is only made perfect inside of your weaknesses. Think, think about this for a second. Nobody comes to God because of their strengths, right? Nobody says, man, my life is like operating right about 95% right now. But you know what would just kick it up a notch? A little bit of Jesus, you know, I, all I need is just a couple more octane, you know, and then I'm really cruising as fast as I can. Nobody comes to God out of strength. All of us come to God out of weakness. It's only when we approach God out of weakness that we see his strength completed, finished in us, perfected inside of us. We come and we find God because we know that when we are weak, he is strong. I remember a children's song about Jesus loving me that says that. So Paul, um, Paul talks about something in this passage where he talks about the thorn in his flesh. We don't normally list thorns in our flesh on our resume. In fact, let me just real quick I am not giving you an example of how to fill out a resume. Please do not do a resume or a college application with all of your weaknesses. You will not get in. You will not get a job. Please list strengths, all right? Minimize weaknesses. That is good advice for getting a job. It's bad advice for relating to the God of the universe, though. Paul lists this, this thorn in his flesh, and for years, scholars have debated, like, what is the thorn in his flesh, right? And there's two, there's two clues, and there's a couple different ways that people take this. Some people emphasize the word flesh, the thorn in the flesh. And so they say, well, maybe it was his eyesight. Because if you remember at the end of some of his letters, he says, hey, I'm writing this with my own hand now. Look at the large letters that I use. Yeah? Well, maybe his, maybe his eyesight was poor, which is why he had to use large letters. If you remember when he um, became a follower of Jesus, he was on the road to Damascus, and he was struck blind, and then he was healed, but maybe that healing wasn't a full healing. Maybe it was um, sort of like the, the limp that was given to Jacob after he wrestled with God, where like, okay, you can see again, but you'll never see the same way in order to kind of keep you dependent on me. Some people think that maybe, it's, maybe it was epilepsy or some sort of neurological disorder because he certainly fell down on the road to Damascus and it was a God thing. And certainly he's having these ecstatic revelations and maybe they're coming with sort of this neurological thing and, and he's saying to himself, hey, I would rather just not have the pain and not have the unconsciousness and the scariness of a neurological disorder. I'd rather just the, the visions and the whole thing go away. Some people... Um, some people have suggested that, that maybe Paul was um, deformed due to all of the things that happened. Um, that we do have an account from the second century, maybe 50 or 60 years after he was around, of what he looked like. And it's not, he wasn't a good-looking man. And it's possible that in a world without modern medicine, when you've been beaten, when you've been shipwrecked, when you've had stones thrown at your face and everything else, that you're walking weird, that your bones aren't healing naturally, that you're deformed. And so maybe the thorn in his flesh was some sort of deformity. 
So some people guess that maybe they put the emphasis on the word flesh, that maybe the thorn in his flesh was something about his body. But some people say they, they put the emphasis on the next phrase, which is a messenger of Satan. And they say maybe it was a person. Maybe there was this person inside of a church who was driving him nuts. And he was trying to get through to the church, and he was trying to make a difference, and he was trying to help them. And yet this messenger of Satan kept tormenting him and kept stopping him, kept saying the wrong thing, kept fighting him at every turn. And maybe he used this term thorn in the flesh the way we use the term pain in our neck, right? Like when somebody says, I have a pain in my neck, or that person is a pain in the neck, right? They're not literally saying that my neck is sore because of that person. They're saying that that person is a real pain in the neck or other parts of the body. Um, Maybe that's what thorn in the flesh means here, that it's simply a person. But the beauty of part, of course, is that we have no idea exactly what the answer is. And that's why all of us can read this passage. We can see ourselves in that thorn in the flesh. That he says, I've got this thing and it feels like I want to get rid of it so badly and yet God's willing to let me live with it. So what, um, so what, what, are, what are your weaknesses? If our greatest strength is found where Christ is made strong in us, if your strength is in your weakness, what, what are your weaknesses? Do you have a, a physical issue or, or some sort of handicap? Is there a person here or a person at home who just soaks up all your energy, drives you crazy, requires more emotional energy than it feels like you have to give sometimes? Is, is your disposition your weakness? You have a quick temper. Or you're easily despondent or depressed? Is your history your weakness? You've made some choices in the past and those choices just keep coming back to haunt you again and again and again. Maybe there was a sin issue and you've repented from that, but it's still the consequences of what you did that come back to haunt you. Do you have have weaknesses and what are they? Because the scriptures say that when you are weak, then he is strong. I've had a new understanding of weaknesses myself recently because if I can do just a, a wee bit of self-confident boasting for just a second, I was at the top of my game five months ago. I mean, when I left my church, I was at, you know, if you were to graph my trajectory, it was all going up and to the right, Okay. Everything was great. We were baptizing dozens of people every year. People were coming to faith. Amazing things were happening. Lives were being transformed. People who had addictions were overcoming their addictions. There were, there were people, like we, we had um, 5% of everybody in our church every Tuesday night. We met on Tuesday nights. 5%, it was their first time in our church. We had that many new people that one out of every 20 people were brand new every week. That's 52 weeks out of the year, one out of every 20 people. It was their first time. That's how excited people were about inviting people to church. And that's how willing people were to come. I mean, it was, it was an unbelievable experience. And I was at the absolute top of my game. I, I was respected in the church. I was respected around the Denver metro area. All the pastors know me I, in, in, around town. I can't go to a place in Denver where there's more than 10,000 people where somebody doesn't recognize me. If I go to the airport, somebody there knows me and says hi. If I go to a football game, somebody there knows me. If I go to the mall, somebody knows me. I was exceedingly and still am popular there because so many people have come through our church. One out of every 10 people age 18 to 35 has been to our church in the Denver metro area. That's unbelievable. 
One out of 10 people, 18 to 35, has been through our church. It's an incredible amount of influence. And like I said, I was at the top of my game. And yet it's out of all of that, this peak existence, as I like to think of it, that God calls me and says, you know what? I'd really love for you to go to Mozambique, Africa. And I know you love your house, and I know you love your job, and I know you love all your friends here, your entire support network. And I'd really love to take you out from the top of the graph and just kind of throw you in the bottom of this one, not really knowing what you're going to do. And so I've really wrestled for the last three years with this calling that's been growing and growing and growing inside of me with my weaknesses. Because, you see, I used to be really good at what I did, and people liked me, and that made me feel good. And now I'm being thrown into something where I have no idea what I'm doing. Nobody there even knows me, so therefore nobody there likes me. And I, I just realized more and more that I have no idea what I'm doing. And I was driving in my car last month, and I was to the point of tears where I was so overwhelmed with having to raise money and move my family and my kids, and we're going to get malaria when we're there because you can't take anti-malaria drugs for that long. And I was just kind of overwhelmed with the whole process. And I was, I, I was crying, and I'm not really a crier. I'm the opposite. I'm a non-crier. And I, I, I was tearing up, and I'm just like, God, I'm done. I'm overwhelmed. I can't do this. I'm fed up. I'm kind of pissed off because I liked my old life, and now I'm in this new life where I'm weak. And he, he brought to mind this passage from um, David and Goliath. You remember the, the story, of course, of David fighting the giant and him having faith while Saul had fear. But we remember at the beginning of the story, David had to convince Saul to be able to fight. Saul had to give him permission to go and act as Israel's champion. And he said, he, he gave him all these different examples. He said, no, I've been a shepherd for a long time. And whenever wherever anything came, I would go and I would fight off the animal that came to fight. And, and this verse came to my mind. It says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And again, it was, it was that thing that, that I mentioned earlier, that you mentioned earlier, that in that moment of despair, in that moment of crisis, I was reminded that, no, the, the, the same God who was with me when I was 25 years old teaching to 2,500 people on a Tuesday night at our church is the same God who can deliver me in Mozambique, Africa. And if I was so dependent on my strengths as my graph was going up and to the right, maybe being knocked down and having to live in the midst of my weaknesses is exactly what I needed in order to depend on God's strength again. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The more you grow in your strengths, the more you will cease to believe that to be true. The more you see God help you succeed, the more you feel God work through you, the less you will actually depend on him. There's something inverted. There is something converse. There is something so weird about the way that we're wired that the more we see God work in us, the more we, for some reason, choose to depend on ourselves and our own strengths. But my power is made perfect in you, God says, because my strength is perfected in your weaknesses. So I have, a, um, I have an, an article that I would like to give you, and it is called um, On Becoming a Leader of No Reputation. And, I'll, and again, 
Some of you guys are saying to yourself, I'm not a leader. I don't lead anything right now. This is like not my greatest weakness or whatever. I have, um, I read this article once at least every three months, usually every other month, because it just, it, it does something inside of me. Last week, you guys talked significantly about the idea of humility. Well, like, how do you do humility? You know, it's a hard attitude, but how do you do it? What does it look like? What does it feel like? I'd like you to, to take a copy of this article. Just spend some time reading it right now. I don't have anything else between now and lunch. If it hits you and you want to process it, take the time and do that. If it doesn't hit you, would you please file it away somewhere that you will see it again and promise me that you will at least give it one more try and, and, and see if God might have something to say to you inside of it. Is that a deal? So please read it right now. If you need to process it through right now, process it through right now. If, if it doesn't stick, file it away somewhere where you definitely are going to read it again. You have to promise to read it again and see if God speaks to you the, the next time through. All right? So you're, you're dismissed to go read this wherever you'd like to do that.